This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, today we're going to talk about Haiti and Haiti and Grace Point. And let me just give you a little background before I ask Dr. Snodgrass and uh, Melody to come up and to tell you a little bit more. Some 20 years ago, I was a young staff pastor at Christ Church with my mentor, L.H. Hardwick, uh, wet behind the ears, uh, but at that place, it was a veritable seminary divinity school, Bible school, all wrapped in one for me, and I learned a lot there. And I also met a lot of wonderful people, some of who I'm looking at now that I've been pastoring for about 20 years. But one of the, one of the really bright, wonderful families that I met at Christ Church very early on was a man and a woman probably in their early 40s at the time, Bernie and Marcia Hudson. Uh, Bernie and Marcia had three young children, a daughter, Karis, who was about 12 or 13 at the time, and two boys, Brandon and Tori. I was honored to walk with this family and, and, and to really serve as a pastor still in their life two decades later. I was especially honored to spend a good amount of time with Bernie. Uh, Bernie is a highly intelligent, uh, eminent by my estimation, child psychiatrist. At that time, he was a child psychiatrist at Vanderbilt. Uh, just a brilliant guy. Bernie and I became friends pretty quickly and have remained friends through the years. But I walked with Bernie and we shared our faith together. I wouldn't say I'm the person who led Bernie to Christ because Marcia, his wife, is a veritable saint, really is. And Bernie had a lot of wonderful people in his life, but I, I played a role. Uh, Bernie is a very heady, brilliant guy, great guy, but he struggled with faith and matters of God. So he and I met for years, literally. And I'll never forget the one day when he walked into my office and there was just an eruption in his heart and soul. And uh, as Frederick Beekner said, the Great Wall of China fell and Atlantis rose up out of the sea and the grace of God struck him across the face beautifully, mercifully. And Bernie began his journey um, in, a, in a new way with God from that moment on. Eventually, uh, the Hudsons moved to L.A. We remained in touch, though, still remain in touch to this day. And I knew that their daughter, Karis, who had graduated from Christ Presbyterian Academy, just a brilliant young girl, I knew that she had moved to New York City. Instead of matriculating to university, she, at the age of 18, 19, um, moved to New York City. While at Christ Church, we had had a fellow named Bill Wilson. Many of you have heard of Bill Wilson and a very prolific inner city ministry in New York City. Uh, Bill had come to Christ Church and Karis was a young lady sitting in our service and she was so touched by Bill's stories of his work there in the inner city that she decided to uproot and she made her way um, to New York. She lived there for a year. I stayed in contact with her. There was a lot of lonely, dark nights. It was hard work working with inner city children. She saw a lot of deprivation. Um, but after a year, through an encounter that she would say was providential, she made a move to Wanamint, Haiti. She was, by that time, 21 years old, and Karis has lived in Wanamint for the last 12 years. She is one of the you know, everybody in their vocation know what I'm talking about, but there are just trophies in your life, and that family's a real just uh, trophy. That's probably the wrong word, but that's the way I feel in my heart, just to look and say, wow, I got to be a part, a little part of that. 
Um, but Kara's moved there, and she's been there for 12 years, from 21 to 33, and she's become the vice president of a very substantial ministry, the ministry that drew her there called Danita's Children, uh, started by a woman named Danita Estrada, who only three years before Karis had gone there. Not a trained missiologist, not really trained in any way, but just with a heart, Danita went there, rented a house, and started taking hurting, starving children off the street. Since that time, in the last 15 years, when we walked on the grounds the other day, Melody, you might help me with this, I was estimating there has to be 60 to 80,000, maybe 100,000 square feet of building under roof. Uh, it's an orphanage. Nancy and I were talking a moment ago on the phone as she was driving in, and she reminded me, it's, it's an orphanage, perhaps there are others like it, but it's unlike many orphanages I've seen. It's not just a ministry to children without parents, but those children have parents, and Mama Karis, and Mommy Danita and Mommy Brenda, but Danita's children is not just taking children out of deprivation, but they really are raising up leaders in Haiti that potentially can help shape the social, governmental, spiritual landscape of that society. And I know there are other orphanages doing that, but it is a profound place that's giving kids opportunities that they otherwise would not have. So Karis has been there. Seven years ago, she was in Nashville and uh, Nancy and I knew that she was in Nashville, so we decided to have her. We said, we want you to speak on Sunday morning at our church. We're just a young church, three or four years old. The way we're, de we're deciding to do missions these days is we're not going to hire a missions director, which we can't hire. We don't have a missions board. We're not going to have a missions conference every year. We're just going to bring great ministries before our people. And instead of treating Grace Point like a 501c3 organization primarily, Grace Point is the people we're gonna cut out the middleman and give our people access to great ministries. And if they, if they give to those ministries instead of Grace Point or they reallocate, we're just not gonna keep up with all of that. Uh, we're just gonna go that route instead of taking a 15, 20 cent dime off the dollar with the middleman process. So Karis was one of the first that we did that with. And I didn't know who it would be within our congregation. But sitting there in the service that morning was some of our newest members who since have become some of our best friends, and that's Dave and Melody Snodgrass. I had no idea, Karis had no idea, but she shared her heart. A lot of you were there that day. And Dave and Melody felt a tug in their hearts that eventually would become more than a tug and it would prove to be truly a clarion call from God to connect with Karis and Danita and the little town there, Wanamint, I say little town, it's probably the size of Murfreesboro, but even more than Wanamint and Danita's children and Karis to connect with the plight of the Haitian people. Over the past seven years, that call, that tug that they felt, has slowly, carefully, and prayerfully developed into what I believe they would testify to, and they will in this service, uh, into a life-altering experience for them. Not just for them, but for their friends, um, for their family, and their extended family of employees that with them serve this community and many of you here as Snodgrass King uh, Dentistry. The peak of that call has been the addition to their life, Dave, Melody, Peyton, and Matthew, um, Peyton and Matthew, two incredibly fine young men, but the addition to that family of four, a fifth, a young lady that has been a wonderful addition to the life of this church, uh, a young lady by the name of Esperance, whom they adopted from Haiti after the earthquake 
some four, four and a half years ago. She has impacted all of us and is a bright spot in our life and has changed theirs forever. Little by little, their involvement there in Haiti has invited others within our Grace Point community to get involved as well. Two weeks ago, a dozen or so members of our congregation, maybe 15 of our congregation, joined the dental team. At Snodgrass King, uh, their employees literally work all year long, some type of inherent merit system to be able to go. They try to win a trip to Haiti to be able to be involved with this incredible ministry that Dave and Melody have conjoined to Danita's children, a dental ministry. Uh, so many people there, I can't even begin to tell you the, the deprivation levels and certainly dentistry, pediatric dentistry is not something that these people experience. So Dave and Melody have poured themselves into Juana Minth, into Danita's children, and they take their team with them a time or two a year and throughout the year are doing a whole lot more. When I came back, I told Nancy, who is just best of friends with Melody, we consider her one of her closest friends, I said, you don't know what these people are doing. I'm their pastor and friend. I had no idea. I thought I had an idea, but it's deeper than what you can know. And that's not just bragging on them. That's, there are so many of you doing that same kind of thing in, in the area of your life that God's called you. But it's really profound to see, and I'm more impressed with ever to what God is doing through them and in them. And I want to say this, Dave's going to come because Dave's going to, Dave did a perfect mix in the first service. It's exactly what I wanted. It's a bit of history about Haiti that will give you a bit of an understanding, not only as a member of the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ, but as a citizen of the United States. Why myself, the board, the leadership, um, as Nancy and I have been talking for the last seven years about our church and about what we are called to, we are feeling, all of us, uh, the elders of this church, that Haiti, for reasons only fully known to God, is one of the callings of our church. Along with a few ministries that have sprung up organically here, like Men of Acts, Grace Overs, Timothy's Gift. Um, Brian, just this week I met with two girls that you have mentored into their life. They met with the elders and we prayed with them and they're headed to Nicaragua. Just indigenously, organically, ministries are springing up here. And we believe that Haiti is one that we are going to go deeper and deeper and deeper through the Snodgrasses, through Karis, who is ours. She's probably watching. She watched in the first service. She's watching right now, and she's incredibly sick, hurting all over because she now has, what's the fever? Chicken gunga. She, she has it, and she told me she feels like a 100-year-old person. She's hurting so bad in all of her joints. I talked to her just a few months ago. She was in an intensive care unit at UCLA because she had another illness from there, uh, yeah, a dengue fever. This is a bright star among us, and she's Grace Points. She's from us. She's a part of us, and she's watching right now, and we're praying for you that you'll feel better. Um, they say the results of this uh, chicken gong gonga can last up to two years in the joints, and she's got it, but she's not complaining. So to help us understand this call more fully, um, my good friend, Dr. Snodgrass, is going to come, and he's going to give you what I think is a riveting history lesson interspersed with the pathos and the tug that they felt in the beginning, and we'll talk. The team will come up here in a little bit. I'd like for some of them to talk as well, and Melody, but take us through.
Guys, bear with me. I'm not, I'm not used to speaking in front of a large group like this. So uh, when Stan asked me to speak yesterday morning, I put together something. I felt like it was meaningful. Where is Haiti? Well, Haiti's not 2,000 miles or 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. Haiti's not a continent near Europe. Haiti, Haiti is a country that lies 350 miles off the southern tip of Florida. What are some of the facts concerning Haiti that are meaningful to me? Haiti is the world's oldest black republic. Haiti's the only country in the history of the world that was formed by slaves who fought and gained their freedom. I'm reading this so I don't get off track. Haiti's the second oldest republic in the Western Hemisphere. Do you all know what the first one was? America, the United States. Haiti, called the Land of Mountains, once known in Europe for three centuries as the Pearl of the Caribbean. What's some of the recent history of Haiti? The earthquake of 2010. On Tuesday, January the 12th, 2010, at 4.30 or 4.53 p.m., a killer earthquake of 7.7 magnitude struck at the heart of Haiti. The quake's epicenter was in Lyon, Haiti, some 16 miles west of Haiti's capital city, Port-au-Prince. An estimated 3 million people of Haiti's 9 million population were affected by the earthquake. An estimated 230,000 people died 300,000 were injured, and over 1 million people were left homeless. November 2010, I was in Haiti. I was crossing the border between Dahabon and Wanamint, and UN troops were at the border guarding the border, and they were there to prevent violence and maintain order and control among the Haitian people. The Haitians were upset because 450 or 500 of them crossed the border every day to go work in the DR, uh, and they were forced to go through nursing stations and cleaning stations before they were being allowed into the Dominican Republic. This was, this was right at the cholera epidemic of 2010. Dominicans were spraying vehicles as they entered the Dominican from Haiti. Dominican guards are making sure that all the Haitians that cross the border first go to the cleaning station, then to the nursing stations. Political corruption, revolution, embargoes, epidemics, hurricanes, and earthquakes have followed Haiti since its inception. The ever-pressing needs of the Haitian people include hunger, unemployment, disease, child slavery, spousal abuse, illiteracy, and environmental devastation. Since adopting our precious daughter Maggie, I've read every book that I could lay my hands on concerning the history of this once magnificent island, and I might say it's going to be magnificent again someday. I hope it's in my lifetime. Here's two excerpts from the book that was written by Pulitzer Prize winner Tracy Kidder in 2003. The book's entitled Mountains Beyond Mountains, and I read you this because it describes Haiti. As the plain banked over the Port-au-Prince, the brown landscape dotted with just a little green showed eroded once beautiful mountainsides that now looked like the rib cage of a starving animal. The once clean turquoise rivers lacing down the mountainside were stained brown as they bled the last of Haiti's topsoil into the sea. It bothers me to even look at it. Haiti can't support nine million people, and yet there they are. There they are, kidnapped from West Africa. Another excerpt. He lay there in a ditch. Both hands were cut off, and he was bleeding to death. Sights along this roadside were brutal enough. The emaciated beggars, the barefoot, swollen-bellied children lugging water. 
Through the jousting windshield, I saw a thin man in a straw hat riding a starving Haitian pony. He was mounted on a traditional Haitian saddle made of straw, designed, it would seem, to braid the backs of the donkeys and ponies until they bled. With his spurs, he was kicking the pony's protruding rib cage, hurrying, I imagine, to get to some rocky, infertile piece of local farmland so his children could have at least one meal that day. Haiti's original habit inhabitants were peace-loving, seafaring descendants of South American Arawak Indians. They, were, they called themselves the Taino, the good people. They lived for centuries in a peaceful tropical paradise where fishing and small subsistence farming were their way of life. Their homes were called bohijos. Today, every October, we Americans celebrate Christopher Columbus Day. I so wish we didn't. In 1492, after soliciting financial support from practically every monarch in Europe, Columbus finally was able to convince Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain to finance a voyage in search of a westerly route to the spice-rich Orient. From Columbus's diary, they swam out to where we were sitting, bringing us parrots and balls of cotton thread. They were willing to trade everything they had. They all go naked as their mothers bore them. They were very well built with fine, handsome bodies and faces. Their hair is coarse and short in the front and long, never cut in the back. They took great delight in pleasing us. They're very gentle and without knowledge of what is evil, nor do they murder or steal. They love their neighbors as themselves and they can have the sweetest talk in the world and are gentle and always laughing. Yet when he returned with, with about six or eight kidnapped Indians, this is what he said. Your Highness, I could conquer the whole of them with 50 men and govern them as I please. In 1493, Columbus made a second voyage to Hispaniola, and this time he brought 17 ships that were filled with 1,200 Spanish-seeking Spanish treasure seekers, Spanish criminals, and Spanish seekers of fortune. As the appointed governor of Hispaniola, Columbus forced all of the Indians over the age of 14 to work in the Spanish gold mines. He placed a monthly quota of gold on each man, and for those who failed to meet these quotas, their hands were cut off, tied around their neck, and they were left to bleed to death. They were equipped with horses, muskets, swords, cannon, and man-eating bullmastiff dogs. These men sought nothing more than gold, murder, rape, and plunder. All told, Columbus made four voyages to the New World. His search for gold and silver and his zeal to convert the godless Indians to Christianity left nothing but death, disease, and destruction to a peaceful Indian society that became practically extinct 30 years after he arrived. In 1501, Columbus introduced the first African slaves to the Western Hemisphere. He brought them to his third settlement, Santo Domingo, in the Dominican Republic. All told, Columbus made four voyages to the New World. His search for gold and silver and his zeal to convert the godless Indians to Christianity left nothing but death, disease, and destruction to the peaceful Indians. From 1501 to 1803, African slaves were, were savagely beaten, raped, killed by the Spanish, then the French, then the British, then the Portuguese in Brazil, 
And as their human toil enriched a lavish European society with gold, silver, sugar, tobacco, cotton, and other labor-intensive goods, it was the backs of these slaves that brought Europe out of the Dark Ages, enriched the whole European society. The infamous triangular trade routes encouraged by Europeans with guns, ammunition, rum, and cloth, African kings sold their captives into slavery. You know, I heard that all the time. You know, African kings sold their own people into slavery. Baloney. They sold them into slavery, and they were encouraged by guns, ammunition, rum, and cloth. The slaves were loaded into the cargo holds of Spanish, French, Portuguese, and British ships to be forced into the labor camps in the West Indies to produce sugar, cotton, tobacco, rum, etc., etc., for export to Europe. People ask me all the time, why Haiti? Why Haiti? I'm going to tell you about three good reasons right now why every American needs to know why Haiti. Everyone sitting here owes a lot to Haiti today. Inspired by the American Revolution of 1775 through 1783, and the French Revolution of 1789 and 1799, African slaves revolted, armed only with African poison recipes, wooden, res uh, wooden spears, handmade machetes. They bravely fought Napoleon's army, gaining their freedom in 1803. Napoleon's army at the time was the greatest army on the face of the planet. Their revolutionary leaders, their founding fathers, if you will, like our founding fathers, were men that were named Toussaint Louverture. I wish we celebrated his day instead of Columbus's. Jean-Jacques Dessalines, Henri Christophe, and Alexandre Patreon. Toussaint Louverture was a 45-year-old former uh, French slave, carriage driver, and horse trainer. He was eventually captured by the French under a flag of truce. Can you imagine? French throw up this flag of truce and they take him captive. He was thrown into the cargo hold of a French, French ship and sent to France only to be imprisoned by Napoleon in a cold, damp French prison where he died six months later. His last words were said to be, in overthrowing me, you have only cut down the trunk of the tree of black liberty. It will spring up again by its roots, for they are numerous and they are deep. Then you had General Jean-Jacques Dessalines, his second in command. Born in Africa and transported to Haiti as a slave, Dessalines worked in the sugar fields of a French plantation owner. It was Dessalines who thoroughly defeated Rochambeau at the Battle of Tears near Capetian. It was Dessalines who declared Haiti's independence once and for all. It was Dessalines that took the French flag, which was red, white, and blue, took the white out of the flag, and he also took the white by slaughtering every white person in Haiti. In 1804, the defeat of Napoleon's army was directly responsible for Thomas Jefferson's purchase uh, of Middle America, the so-called Louisiana Purchase. Y'all heard about that. You didn't know it was the Haitian Revolution was the reason for it. That's what discouraged Napoleon from the Western Hemisphere. Henri Christophe, the first and only anointed king in Western Hemisphere. Henry, king Henry, in fear of French reinvasion and a return to slavery, built 16 mountaintop fortresses around Haiti to ensure that Haiti would never suffer the indignation of slavery again. When we went to Haiti this time, we found out that my daughter's biological father was a man named Equest Christophe. I always call Maggie my little princess. 
when, when, I, when I had been told, telling her about the history of Haiti, and when she found out that her last name was Christophe, and I had told her that she was from royalty, you should have seen the difference it made in her life. In 1817, Alexander Pétion of Haiti provided Simon Bolivar of South America not only Haitian financial support, but Haitian troops to aid Bolivar in his liberation efforts in South America and Central America. This led to the liberation of Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, Peru, and Bolivia from Spanish rule. Pétion's only condition was that if Bolivar gained independence for, that, for those countries, that he would abolish slavery in those countries forever. In 1812, the British Army reinvaded the United States and burned our capital to the ground. The British Navy had captured the ports of Mobile and Pensacola, and they were moving rapidly toward New Orleans. It was the expertise of Haitian pirates and Haitian cannon that was directly responsible for the defeat of the British at the Battle of New Orleans. You didn't know that. People didn't tell you that Haitian pirates manning cannon that they had lugged off their ships to ground to help Andrew Jackson is really what defeated the British Army at the Battle of New Orleans? Were it not for the Haitian pirates manning Lafitte's cannon, the southern states of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida might well have become and remained British territories. So what's Haiti like today? Four words describe the average Haitian today. Proud, peaceful, resourceful, and resilient. I can remember in the 1990s, I, all, I, all I could see was some Haitian jumping over some fire or somebody with a tire around their neck burning. It's not like that. Most Haitian farms are subsistence farms. Here the lady is bringing her sugar cane into the market to sell that day. And this man is cutting the sugar cane so he can sell it. It's sugar cane that the, that the mothers are forced to give their children to abate their hunger. The next slides are just slides of the market. Haitians selling their produce. These chickens have their legs tied, and the Haitians are going to be buying them and, uh, for their weekly meals or daily meal. In the 1970s, 80s, you all heard of the swine flu where the United States government went in and killed every Pig, every Creole pig, this is a bank. This is a wedding gift to a Haitian. This is a funeral for a Haitian, uh, these pigs are. We went in and killed all their pigs, and we replaced them with these, with these white Iowa pigs that were used to being grain-fed. Well, the Iowa pigs didn't do very well. This is the parking lot. Haitians come in riding these ponies or carrying their goods on all these horses. There's no veterinarian services in Haiti. Most of the horses have stunted growth. They're, they're sickly. They're... They're not fed very well. The dogs and cats are the same way because there's no veterinarian service. Haitians are great with farm animals. What's religion like in Haiti? Well, 80% of all Haitians are Catholic. 16% are Protestant, 3% are other, and 1% have no religion. The next slide was, I was going to show you a Haitian church service. I wanted you to see it because... They take their church services very, they, they just take them to heart. They don't, if they're going to go into church, they only wear their best clothes, and they're dressed as nicely as we are, but that's their best clothes. What's education like? 60% of the population of Haiti is illiterate. They can't read and write. 
60% of all children in Haiti fail to reach the fifth grade. And of those, one in five fail to make it to the sixth grade, and 2% graduate, only about 2% graduate from high school. And most, most of those kids are 24, 25 years old. 90% of the education in, in Haiti is controlled by NGOs, private schools, uh, churches. What about the wealth of Haiti? Of the estimated 9 million people, there's only about 20 to 30 Haitian families that control 90% of Haiti's wealth. These families have homes in Miami, Paris. They also have a home in Haiti, which they're very seldom at, where they spend the majority of their time in Miami and Paris. Their children are educated abroad in elite private schools and colleges. What about public works? There's not a lot of tax dollars in Haiti. I'd like to take a bunch of Republicans down to see what Democratic tax dollars can do for uh, society because it's certainly improved our way of life. Very little money is spent on public works in Haiti. The litter is scattered and piled high throughout Haiti's landscape. There's no public drinking water or public utilities. Say there's very little. 70% of Haiti's groundwater is contaminated with coliform and E. coli bacteria from human waste and animal waste. And the lack of clean drinking water kills one out of every seven children before they reach the age of five in Haiti. Waterborne diseases such as hepatitis, hepatitis A, E, C, typhoid fever, yellow fever, and cholera kill or, second, or, kill or sicken thousands of Haitians every year. The little girl there on the right, if you look at her eyes, look how yellow they are. She's suffering probably from hepatitis C. Very few roads in Haiti are paved. Most of them are mountainous. They've been washed out by the uh, tropical storms and rains that they have because the forests have been denuded to make charcoal. Most Haitians live without electricity or refrigeration. They live without air, conditioner, without air conditioning or hot water. Their clothes have to be washed in some dirty, polluted mountain stream. Six to eight people often live in a single Haitian home, usually characterized by a dirt floor, a tin or a thatched roof, and no indoor, and no indoor plumbing. My daughter Maggie's family right now, there's nine of them, that live in that small little house that Stan and you all visited. <sighs> Picture of a Haitian kitchen. It's a tin can, two-thirds of it's filled with cement, and the top of it's open for charcoal. Usually there's a teepee holding this, and it's holding a bucket down right over the charcoal so that they can cook whatever they're going to cook that particular day. Entire mountainous regions of Haiti have been deforested to make to make charcoal for cooking. Can you imagine not having electricity or gas or something to cook with? What's the health care like in Haiti? Well, mosquito spread diseases like malaria, yellow fever, lymphocytic filariasis, dengue fever, and the most recent killer, chikungunya, take a heavy toll on Haitian lives. That's Lickney. That's Lickney's leg. He has elephantiasis. Every day he walks about a mile and a half to our orphanage. And every day he walks back home, and he's in constant pain. Yet this man comes and sews clothes for our orphanages, for, for our orphans. Sixty percent of Haiti's children have no access to health care, and many of them die for the lack of a two-dollar prescription. Every time I go to Haiti, I take a high-caloric infant formula to save some infant who's been given to Mommy Danita that week. Trying to, even while we were there, there was a mother trying to give her baby to Mommy Danita so that her baby didn't starve because she was pregnant again. Haiti has the highest incidence of HIV AIDS outside of Africa. 5,000 Haitian babies are born HIV positive every year. 
Only one in four of all childbirths are attended to by healthcare professionals. Can you imagine sticking your legs in that stirrup right there and having a baby right there without a healthcare professional right there with you? That was what Melody and I saw when we visited the hospital there in one month. The lifetime risk or death for a pregnant woman in Haiti is one in 93. AIDS, intestinal infections, and complications during pregnancy account for an estimated one in 20 maternal deaths during pregnancy. Haiti has the highest incidence per capita of tuberculosis. It's a major problem in combating TB as the co-infection rate with HIV can run as high as 30% in some urban areas. One out of every seven children in Haiti will die before their fifth birthday from disease and or starvation. It's thanks to the women like Danita Estrella and to those who've given to, to support Danita's children, Hope for Haiti, that little Rose Mika was not one of them. Neither was my daughter Maggie. This whole talk's been dedicated to the very first orphan that I met when I was there. Her name was Rose Carlene. She was in intensive care in the Dominican Republic, and she died shortly after this picture. And she died with one of the missionaries holding her hand and keeping her close. She didn't die alone. Find your own Calcutta. Well, Melody and I have found our Calcutta. This is an aerial view I took in 2010 of Danita's children. One of the reasons that I love Danita's children is that there's a, there's a church there, a Christian church. There's a cafeteria there that feeds the children that attend their school. There's a medical center there, a pediatric medical center there now, and we have a dental center that we built over the outhouse of the school that has, has about three operatories in it that we can actually not only pull teeth but fill teeth. This is the founder of Danita's Children, a godly woman named Danita Estrella. She saved so many lives. When she walks the street of Wanamint, the people there call her Mommy Danita. They know who she is. And she can't walk the street without someone wanting to hand her their baby. And here are the long-term missionaries, Karis Hudson, which Stan talked about, who's been there for 11 or 12 years, and Brenda Sapp. I once said if I was going to be baptized again, I wanted Brenda to baptize me in the Massacre River. These women in this place, these women are angels walking amongst us here on this earth. I love this saying. Melody, I want you to come up and say a few words now, if you would. Why don't all of the team come up and stand behind Melody while, while she uh, talks? All the team that went this last time, the dental team and the folk from our church. Um, when Stan asked us to, to say something, um, actually, I was going to have you get my devotional. I read, well, I'll, I'll just talk. I'm not very good at this. I'm, actually, I'd rather take a beating than talk in public, but hey, here I am. Shows how much I care about this. Um, he asked us to talk about how this trip had impacted us. Well, David and I have been going for a long time, so how it affected us on this trip was probably a little different than how it affected some of the people who it was their first, first time to go. I was trying to decide what to say, and I thought, for, for us, this was a family trip. We weren't going purely on a mission trip because we've been on mission trips, but it was my daughter's first time that she felt comfortable and ready emotionally to go back. So we decided if she was going to go back, we were going to go with her, all of us. So we all went. But the reason I was trying to figure out what to say 
I wanted to let you know why we picked Haiti. And it started about eight years ago. I was facing a milestone birthday in my life, you know, 30. And, um, <laughs> and I took stock and I said, you know, we've pretty much, we got this American dream thing down. We've got the business and the house and the friends and the family and the church and everything's great. But what have I really done for the kingdom of God? And I mean, we all do little things, but I just felt really compelled that it was time that I did something important because, you know, God needs me so badly to take care of stuff for him. So I devised a business plan and I was going to make such an impact in Nashville because that's kind of what I like to do. And I really wanted to be in Nashville. This is our backyard. There's a lot of people out there working all over the world, but I wanted to take care of the people here in Nashville. And I went out there and I prayed and I called all the NGOs and all the organizations in town who could help me figure out how to do what I needed to do. And y'all, I couldn't get anybody to call me back. Now that has never happened before when I'm offering to give my time and money to an organization that they go, thank you so much for your phone call. We'll call you back and nobody calls. And I'm thinking, well, God, what the heck? I mean, you told me it was my time to do something big. So what do you want me to do? And I'm not going to take up a lot of time because God gave me, a, he gave me one little opportunity that happened one day in my kitchen. Something came on television and God spoke to me in my kitchen and he said two words to me. He said, do something. And I was like, but this isn't Nashville. This isn't another part of Tennessee. And this is a family that I don't know if I want to get involved with. And, you know, and I just kind of let it go. And news story came on again the next morning. And God said, do something. And I'm like, well, okay, what the heck? I'll go tell David what God wants me to do. And he, having common sense, will stop me and say, you're crazy. Don't do that. You're just feeling guilty. I walked in the bedroom, told him what I wanted to do, and he goes, you know, I think that's exactly what you need to do. Good luck. Get started. And what ultimately happened was that an entire family's life and future was changed. A family was saved. Amazing things happened in their community, all because I threw a pebble in a pond because God told me to do something. I think God was giving me an opportunity to see if I really was ready, if I really meant what I said, that I really wanted to do something for him and not for me. And once I showed him that I was mature enough to listen and to do what he wanted me to do, Kara showed up at church. And I got to be honest with you, and I can say this because... Maggie's not here, and Wilkins, forgive me, but Haiti was the last place on this planet that I had any desire to go. You've seen what it looks like, and that's just not on my bucket list. So when Karis Hudson came here and started talking about Haiti, I was like, have you lost your mind? David and I weren't even seated together. Alan Revelette, he was in the early service, was between us. And we both just felt compelled to jump out of our chairs and go see what she needed, needed, what was their greatest need. Their greatest need turned out to be a medical center. 
and we know a little bit about that. I know how to design medical centers. So I said, okay, well, come on, you know, in, into our office tomorrow morning and we'll see what we can do to help. She said, well, yeah, we'll have to come in the morning because we have an appointment with the doctor who's been before and we're going to see if he could help us. So, so they showed up at our office the next morning and the doctor that they were in Nashville to see worked for us. Because <sighs> you can imagine, we're all getting, I'm getting chill bumps all over again just sitting here talking about it. It was God's confirmation that this really was what he wanted us to do. So what I'm trying to say to y'all is be careful what you ask for because if you really think you're ready, you better be because he's going to give you an opportunity. He's going to find out if you're really ready. If you don't take that first maturing step, he's going to move on to somebody else because he really doesn't need you. He's just going to give you an opportunity to be blessed. If he tests you in this way and you pass this test, he's going to bring amazing changes into your life. Be ready for them. Be prepared. And I can say that because the most amazing thing that's happened in my life is back there in the children's church right now. I didn't even know how badly I needed or wanted a daughter, but God gave me one. So that's my story. And that's how we got there. So anybody else want to say anything? Brandy. Brandy is one of uh, the folks that work for Dave and Melody. Brandy, I just want to pass the microphone around a little bit. What? You go to Life Point over in Smyrna. Yes, if you lived near us, you'd probably come to Grace Point. But I you, you go, here. I you go to a church. Home. Thank you. Life Point's former First Baptist Smyrna. It's a great church. But anyway, your impressions of the trip? Um, this was my first experience on a mission trip ever. And I'd always heard that you are going to be more impacted than the people that you impact. And sorry, I was not prepared for that. So let me just share you a, one of the events that happened on the trip that touched my heart and has made me reevaluate my faith. While working in the clinic at the orphanage, I had the privilege to work alongside a young lady named Junette. She was a very sweet young lady, and she lived at the orphanage. She came there um, when she was nine years old after the death of her mother. She was our interpreter for us, and she spoke the language to our patients so that we would be able to effectively work on them. I asked uh, Jeanette how old she was, and she said that she was 17. I thought, wow, that's exciting. You're almost done with school. She said, yeah, that she only had another year left, and I asked her what she wanted to do next in life. I was really wondering what the ambitions of a young lady her age were growing up in such poverty, and, you know, what kind of dreams did she have being in a third-world country? She said that she wanted to go to college, and I seen, you know, that's a pretty normal answer, even for a high school kid here in America. But what came next was not. I said, oh, that's great. Where would you like to go? And her response still brings tears to my eyes. She was very convicted and very strong when she said, wherever God wants me. Kind of took me back by her submissive answer. And I said, Jeanette, that is awesome. 
That's amazing. But where do you want to go? Where, where do you really have, you know, a desire to be? And again, she replied, wherever God wants me to go. I do not hope to go anywhere else except exactly where he puts me because I do not want to be disappointed if I do not get what I want. Wow. A 17-year-old young lady smacked me right across the face with what really trusting in God looks like. She had given her whole life to just serving him. I feel like as Americans, sometimes we're spoiled by the unlimited opportunities that we are given. And sometimes we forget how to put God out there and utterly trust him. 2 Corinthians 10.4 really kind of spoke to me um, through this. What are the strongholds that are keeping us from living a more God-centered life? Wonderful. Thank you, Brandy. Uh, in keeping with that, when Stan, when Stan Jr., part of, the, part of the deal of going down there is we need them as much as they need us. Mother Teresa pointed that, that out, that if it truly is more blessed to give than receive, then, then we really are the more blessed. But the interesting thing is they really are the givers too. These, in the midst of all of the deprivation, I have never met a more spiritually rich group of young people. I've never met one, uh, kids who are more happy. Uh, interestingly, in the midst of the deprivation, they struggle with entitlement and being smart aleck, just like any other teenager. Um, they struggle, and yet in the midst of that, there is a presence of God that is so transformative. Uh, Stan Jr. came home, and one of the things Nancy and I were talking about this morning that not only did he feel this sense of redistribution and the blessing and, and needing to give of what he has, but he, he told me, he said, Dad, and you saw the, the one kid that he was beside, their heads were together, they became friends while they were there. That young boy is deaf mute and has seven little brothers and sisters and, and just all day long is scrapping and piecing together a life for his little brothers and sisters. But Stan and that boy just, I mean, there was just a connection. And, and so many of the other kids, Stan told me, and this is a kid going into 10th grade with all the temptations that our kids have. He just said, Dad, and he told his mom, he said, if I come home and I get messed up in drugs and alcohol and, and all the things that kids do, he said, I'm spitting in the face of those kids. He said, because every one of them that I talked to either wanted to be a professional soccer player or a diplomat or a doctor, he said, they had dreams so big. And when I'd walk outside of that orphanage, I'd look at the village and I would think, they'll never realize these dreams. And yet, Danita's children is fighting that very thing. They have two kids graduating this year, and I'm vying to be able to get them here and in our colleges and find sponsor families. They're vying against it, but my kid realized the reality. These kids have dreams that they may never see, and I'm going to come home and twiddle that away. He said, Dad, I'd be spitting in my new friend's face to do that. The opportunities that we have to impact them are only matched by the opportunity that they have as we partner with them to impact us 
uh, in, in our lives. Kara, you told a story about crossing the river that I've been to the Massacre, the Massacre River there between Dominican and, and Haiti so many times across it. I, it didn't strike me the way it did you, but as a mother of two, what did you see when you looked into that river? You can do it. Is it on? Yeah. It's on. I okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was a part of the dental team, so we pretty much rode into the orphanage. We went straight to work, and when the day ended, we had to get back on the bus to get across the border. Um, so that was the majority of my trip. I did get to see a lot, but um, one of the very first days, and I, I'm, the reason I didn't want to talk is because I'm probably going to cry the whole time. Uh, we crossed the river on a bridge, and that's just the main water source for a lot of people. And it's when you say river, I mentioned that you think of like deep flowing waters of a river, but it's barely a river. And but every day there are families doing their laundry and taking baths. And the very first time I saw it, there were these two little boys, and I didn't even I couldn't figure out what I was seeing. I had to I kept looking at, and I know it sounds crazy, but I thought the little boy was wrapped in gauze because it was just so foreign to my mind. I, I couldn't figure out what I was seeing, but it was just these little boys, you know, taking a bath in the river every day. Like, that's just their way of life. They don't have running water. They don't have sinks. They don't have baths. They don't have bathrooms. And um, that was one of the most impactful things for me. And since I've been home, I am seeing things for the first time. It's been very hard for me. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I think Danita's Children is a great place. It's a great um, or orphanage. It's filled with amazing people. And if you ever, ever, ever get an opportunity to go, it will change your life. And you should absolutely go. Thank you, Kara. Pass the microphone to Mark. Mark, talk about Annalie. You took, I took my 16-year-old. You took your 19-year-old. Uh, most of you have not met my sweet daughter, Annalie. She's about to be 20, August 3rd. Um, she really wanted to go. She didn't have much of an understanding why. She just felt the pull to go. Um, and I was a little worried because being a college kid, she is um, not one for going to bed early. <laughs> she stays up most of the night and sleeps all day. And, and uh, you know, as a father, that bothers me. Um, but, you know, the, the first day we got there, she found a group of preteen girls and it blew us all away yeah. to see the connection of my child giving all of herself to this group of girls who followed her, her around the entire time. She played structured games. Ivy got some beads for Annalie to work with the girls with. Um, they played, they sang. The result of this is my, my daughter, Annalie, is going to go back for a 30-day uh, stay at Danita's Children. And I just want to thank the Snodgrass family, Pastor Stan, and all of you here. It was such an honor and blessing to be with you on this, this trip. It was life-changing. On and on and on and on. Um, one more. Mike, tell them about the, the little guy um, that you were talking to. Yeah, little, little Samuel, just quick story, but uh, he was a Little kid, all these little kids just want to hold your hand. They want to be on your shoulders. They just, they love affection. And anyways, I was playing with this little kid, and they don't really say much. They know a little bit of English, but they'll just, you just, their expression on your face is really all you need. But um, 
Anyway, he kind of, as we were playing out in the playground one day, he looked up at me, he's like, do you love Jesus? And I, I said, yes, I, I do. I said, do you? And he looked at me with the biggest smile on his face, and he said, yes, I do. And I thought that was pretty cool because, I mean, all these kids are, you know, they've, parents maybe abandoned them. They've had, you know, their parents have died, whatever, and they've had so much pain in their lives, and still to see some of their smiles on their face and, and they're loving Jesus like that um, really struck a chord with me, and, um, you know, it was pretty, pretty cool. But all these kids, they're just, they're, that was the best part was, yeah. was all these kids. It was, it was awesome. And you, you watched them not just love this invisible idea of Jesus, but you watched the senior high kids take care of the junior high kids, and the junior high kids take care of the elementary kids. They are doing a work there that we as a church can feel honored to partner with, We've taken this slow, and for the last seven years, the Snodgrasses have developed little by little this relationship for us. But I think it's time for us to go to the next level and to commit ourselves in an even deeper way. What that will look like, there's so many opportunities. Uh, just on the medical side, uh, Danita is such a woman of faith. She has built that 80 to 100,000 square feet uh, debt-free through just appealing to churches like ours. They have a four-story hospital of about 16 to 20,000 square feet that has plenty of room for obstetricians to work in and, and just on and on and on, the opportunities are myriad. What the relationship will look like over the next seven years between our church and them, Melody is a board member, Dave is kind of, you know, the doctor leading the way. We can't project what it will be the next seven years, any more than y'all could have projected seven years ago that your family of four would become a family of five. This is, I think, the will of God for us. And I told the church in the first service that, you know, every church needs to find those few areas that they can sow into and really make an impactful difference. Um, in the early days of the Christian church, when the church was spreading, the Apostle Paul was reminded by the elders in Jerusalem, when you go, share the gospel, teach them the apostles' doctrine, and tell them to remember the starving saints in Jerusalem. A part of the fabric of the Christian church has always been a part of what it means to be Christian is to remember those, our brothers and sisters, who are hurting and facing deprivation somewhere. That has been in us from the beginning. And whether that's the inner city of Nashville or Haiti, wherever it is, we are called to look at those on the screen with tuberculosis bearing and boring through their chest. You saw a lot of Haitians at the market. Those are the healthiest of Haitians. We didn't show you all the pictures in the hillside. That's where you see the children starving and hurting. In the hillside, Karis told me that still the average child outside of the city eats a meal once every three days. Mothers feed them sugarcane and their teeth rot out of their head. They mix a bit of mud with sugarcane and cholera-filled water to make a mud patty so that there's more substance in their belly. Their life is incredibly different than ours, but their spirits are the same, and they love our Lord deeply, and they need us desperately. So I hadn't 
planned on this. I just knew in my heart a week ago, we are talking in theory about what God is doing in the earth, and next week, historian Phyllis Tickle is coming, and the series is about the church and the spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the church, and this is our calling, and I believe that God is calling us to partner deeper, to go deeper with this ministry through the Snodgrasses and through Karis and Haiti. Karis, we love you deeply, and it is an amazing thing to watch a young lady give her life. Ashley and Robin heading to Nicaragua. What in the world would make two young ladies head out to Nicaragua? Who knows? You may be the next Karis among us. That's what the church is. And those of us who don't go, we are called to sin. Can you say amen? And we are called to support. And to that end, um, I want us to close this service in a substantial way. I want us to close this service by receiving an offering today for our brothers and sisters there. When Paul traveled amongst the churches of Asia Minor and he established them, at the inception of his establishment of those churches, he taught them the apostles' doctrine, he preached to them the gospel, and he told them every week to lay aside an offering for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were dying because of an embargo purposed by the Roman government. We have not only Calcutta, but a biblical mandate, Dave, to always find our Jerusalem. And this church must continually be about the business of laying aside for those who cannot lay aside for themselves. So to that end, I want us to give. Go ahead, let's stand and honor God. Stand together around the room. And let us pray a prayer of acclamation. Lord, we commit ourselves to those that are hurting in our neighborhoods. We commit ourselves, Lord, to developing homeless ministries and minivacs and grace overs. We will take care of our city. But Lord, we commit ourselves as well to those, our brothers and sisters that we've never seen. Our Calcutta, our Jerusalem. Lord Shirley Brentwood Baptist and Christ United Methodist and Fellowship Bible and Fourth Avenue Church of Christ, surely these places are your children too and you're talking to them. And whether that's the mountains of West Virginia, whether that's the plantations, the barren plantations in Belize, whether that's the heartless and helpless domain called Namibia, or whether that's a church behind walls quietly worshiping in China. Surely, Lord, you're calling every local congregation blessed and planted in Jesus' name to remember their brothers and sisters across the way that have no opportunity and no means. Lord, we wrestle over how governments are to redistribute. We argue and get mad with one another, but we proclaim today and we repent. This is not the government's responsibility first. This is the work of the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ. And if we will do our business well, the governments will be set up to do even better. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done, what you've given, and the opportunity you've blessed us with. May we take of our means today and may this offering today be only the tip of the iceberg of a commitment brewing and birthing in our own hearts. May we figure out how to fill a hospital with doctors and 
nurse practitioners and occupational therapists. May we figure out how to staff so we're not just pulling teeth and filling teeth, but may we give them the care that they fully need, the care that our kids are getting at Snodgrass King right here in Cool Springs. May we give them, Lord, what we have. That there be an equality. Forgive us for what we send down our drains that could save the world. Forgive us for waste and excess. Burden our hearts as you burden through the move of your spirit, the first church, as we laid at the apostles' feet our means, and you distribute accordingly. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you with all of its ills and all of its bad and mistakes. We thank you for this country. We pray that we would continue that we would continue to take the lead in this hemisphere to remember this little island nation off our coast and not forget what they've done for us. May Venezuela and Chavez not be ahead of us in caring for that which took care of them. Touch us, Lord, as a country, but most especially touch us as a church and receive this offering, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ in which it's intended and break it and multiply it that it might help lead us now into this ministry full. We pray this in Christ's name. God's people said amen.